Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, January 19th, 2006. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. With this week, John Palmer, author of How to Brew, joins us to talk about lagers. It's that time of year when the temperatures drop and our interest rises in the area of cold fermentation. I want to keep the opening comments fairly short this week because I want to get on to our talk with John. But I want to take a minute to thank everyone who's ordered the pre-release version of our all-grain DVD. We've had some really good response, and it's it's great to see names of people who have uh, ordered our first DVD in the past, and those who have emailed us here at the show along along the way, and those who uh, I'm seeing for the first time. So I'm starting to get feedback from some who have already received and watched the DVD, and I appreciate that. And uh, there's some good comments uh, in their emails uh, and their feedback responses in uh, how to make the material in the DVD better and more understandable. And we're hearing from our friends in Europe and Australia, so I know the DVD works, at least for them. So, that's good news. If you want to learn about the pre-release of uh, our all-grain DVD, go to basicbrewing.com slash grain. That's basicbrewing.com slash grain. You can get this special version of our all-grain DVD without the fancy packaging uh, for only $10. It's a limited-time deal. We're getting the packaging ready, and I'll have some more editing to do following all the feedback that I get. But after I get the production version, I'll be offering them at the regular price. So thanks in advance for your support on this this version. That's basicbrewing.com slash grain. Coming up on February 10th and 11th, the International Mead Festival will be taking place in Boulder, Colorado. So mark your calendars for that. We're working on an interview or getting an interview with David Myers from Redstone Meadery in Boulder, and we hope to have that in a couple of weeks. But you can go to meadfest.com, that's M-E-A-D-F-E-S-T dot com, to find out more information on the International Mead Festival. A uh, hundred brewers in 35 states have joined together to celebrate Ben Franklin's 300th birthday by brewing the same beer uh, Franklin's birthday was on the 17th of this month, and brewers across the country brewed Poor Richard's Ale to mark the occasion. To see whether you have a participating brewer near you, go to poorrichardsale.com. And I'll put links to all these sites that I'm talking about on uh, basicbrewingradio.com. Another fun link that Rick Sellers from Pacific Brew News Radio sent me was an interactive map to all the breweries and brew pubs in the United States. So you can find the ones nearest you. It's kind of sad, though, for, for me, because there are only two brew pubs in the whole state of Arkansas. That's where I live. But, you know, at least I'm near one of them, and it's a good one. So there is there is positive there. Peter from Sydney, Australia, sent me the plans for a homemade stir plate made out of a computer fan and a variable speed controller. You know, some brewers use stir plates with flasks when they make starters to keep the starter in motion. Uh, I'll post uh, Peter's plans and a link to the article that he recommends on the BYO Magazine site on making starters. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate your help with that. Be sure to check that out. Jim from Lothersdale, England, wrote in to ask why his beer wasn't getting the carbonation in the bottle that he had wanted. Well, to make a long story short, I came up with a few suggestions and then forwarded the question to John Palmer to get his ideas as well, and I appreciate John's help with that. After reading John's and my advice, Jim came up with a brilliant idea on his own. 
he put a balloon on top of one of the bottles and shook up the beer. Well, soon, Jim says, the balloon started to inflate. So now Jim thinks he's got a problem with his capper, and he's not getting a good enough seal on his caps. So the CO2 is escaping right out of the top of his beer. So that's excellent thinking on Jim's part. I don't think I would have come up with that. Uh, You know, that test may come in handy for others who may suspect they're not getting a good seal on their bottle caps. Just put a balloon on top of your beer. Finally, several of you wrote in to say how much you like the six-pack show and the concept of brewing with uh, very small batches. It is an experiment, and, you know, we don't know how it will turn out, but uh, primary fermentation is complete on our six-pack of IPA, and I plan to rack to a secondary in the next day or so and add some whole hops, whole cascade hops, when I do so to uh, get some good hop aroma going, hopefully. I'll keep you posted on that. And uh, FYI, I used uh, Designing Great Beers to calculate my ingredients. Uh, Some of you asked about that. And some wrote to say that they're already doing small batches of their own after watching us and listening to us do the same thing. So I hope that uh, all of our beers turn out great. It was a lot of fun to do. But now on to our interview with John Palmer. John is in the last stages of editing the third edition of his book, How to Brew. He uh, took a break to talk to us about lagering. There for a while it was getting colder here in Arkansas, but it warmed up to like the 60s and lower 70s again. So lagering, you know, is not so much on my mind as it used to be. (laughs) Uh, that you're you're a lot better set up for it than we are here. It was uh, it hit 90 yesterday. Oh. <laughs> well, before we jump into the lagering uh, uh, conversation, I want to address uh, really quickly uh, kind of a controversy that that we uh, stirred up uh, at least among a couple of our listeners. Um, you endorsed aluminum pots the last time you were on the show. I had a couple of people who wrote in who said that, uh, you know, experienced homebrewers and, and homebrew shop owners uh, had told them that aluminum pots give the beer a metallic taste. So defend defend your your uh, your uh, recommendation there, John. Well, you know, as with everything, I mean, there are, there are always circumstances uh, when you need to uh, be wary of, uh, you know, of a recommendation. You know, such as, uh, oh yes, the water's fine. Go right in. No, no sharks in this area. <laughs> um, so, with aluminum, it is a, a very good brewing material. Um, I've I've been using aluminum for years. Um, other you know friends of mine, uh, such as Jeff Renner in Michigan, have been using aluminum for years. And the key is that you want to let the let aluminum do, build up a passive oxide. Just like on your copper wort chillers, when you use you know when you use copper to uh, make an immersion chiller and you, you you put a bright and shiny chiller in your wort and it comes out bright and shiny, or if you put in a uh, slightly dull uh, chiller in your wort, it should come out slightly dull because that oxide is passive to the wort. Um, it's not going to be attacked by it. Whereas if you put in a, a dirty dark you know, brown, green, uh, oxide-coated uh, piece of copper in your wort, it's going to come out shiny clean, and all that oxide just ended up in your wort. Mm. The idea is that you're trying to build up 
a passive oxide layer that's going to let that's going to be inert to what you're working with. In the case of aluminum, it's good to boil that when you first use the pot. It's good to fill it full of water and uh, boil it for a little while because that'll build up a, a gray oxide on the inside of the pot. Um, and then you can just you know take a, a sponge and some ordinary dish soap and uh, wash it out and dry it with a paper towel and, or a regular towel and you'll be good to go. That, you know, you've kind of seasoned the pot for its first use. If you took one straight out of Walmart that was you know, squeaky clean, shiny bright, uh, and used it you know, straight off to make a batch of beer in, you might end up with an off flavor, um, but it, it, I doubt it. Uh, the acid in beer is not that strong, and aluminum is fairly inert to it. Are there circumstances where, where people, because of water quality, they, they might not want to use aluminum? Well, most areas in the U.S. Uh, have alkaline water um, where the, uh, the bicarbonate levels are you know, anywhere from 50 to 150 parts per million, and the, the pH of the water is usually 7.5 to 8, 8.5. Uh, water like this will uh, uh, help passivate the pot pretty quickly. It'll build up a dull gray finish, and you, that's what you want. You want it to have a dull gray finish as opposed to a bright and shiny finish. If you have water that is slightly acidic for whatever reason, or if you're using distilled water um, or water that has a, P, a pH of less than 7, there is more chance that you could um, cause some dis, um you know, dissolving of aluminum or the oxide and get a little bit of aluminum flavor or off flavor. But uh, the yeast really should take care of any of those metal ions. Uh, iron, on the other hand, is a is a is a problem. That uh, the yeast don't take that in, and uh, that does definitely cause off flavors. But uh, I've never had an off flavor with aluminum. And in in the in the short experience that uh, Steve Wilkes and I have had with with his aluminum pot, we've been trading it back and forth. We haven't experienced that uh, either. And in defense of enamel pots, uh, I think you had, you had said that uh, you preferred aluminum over enamel because it, of the more even heating and uh, there's more of a chance uh, with enamel from scorching. You know, I, I've used enamel for, for most of my brewing career and, and have had good luck with it. So uh, Yeah, I, I used an enamel pot for years uh, and before I switched to aluminum. And uh, one reason I switched to aluminum is because it was very easy to drill a hole in the side and mount a, uh, a brass spigot in it, you know, to help me uh, drain the, the wort after I'd done boiling it. Um, things like that. You know, it's hard to hard to drill on enamel. Right. So, yeah, I, I, enamel works really well. There are, I guess there's more risk with it in terms of potentially scorching your wort, you know, depending on how you're boiling, if you're using a, a jet burner, propane burner, um, chances are you will develop some hot spots and potentially scorch the wort. And, but if you're on the stove with, you know, typical stove gas or electric element, uh, you, you probably won't. You'll probably be fine. It's kind of one of those situations where your, your mileage may vary. Yes, so. definitely. <laughs> yeah. So we can, we can make recommendations and, and uh, let them uh, decide on their own and, and judge from their own personal experience. That's right. Well, I wanted to just get that out of the way because that's one of those hot hot button issues out there that people uh, tend to, dis- to spend a lot of time discussing. 
uh, and I wanted to get that uh, discussed with you while you're on the on the phone here. But let, let's go on to lagering. Let's start talking about this is the time of year that, that people start to, to uh, or are already thinking about lagering in uh, some parts of the country. Give us some background on lagering. What is it? Where did it come from? Uh, and, you know, what? how is it different from, from ale fermentation? Well, lagering, of course, starts with the yeast. Um, you know, in, in Europe, um, several hundred years ago, uh, and, of course, somebody like Dave Logson have a much better uh, history of, of this than I do off the top of my head. But uh, the, the brewing practices that they were using helped um, the yeast evolve into a cold fermentation uh, yeast. Uh, the yeast strains also um, generally uh, gave off more sulfur compounds during fermentation than, say, ale strains of yeast did. Um, it, it did evolve into a different strain, and as they nurtured that strain and you know helped uh, you know differentiate it from ale yeast, uh, they also you know adapted it adapted to uh, cold weather fermentation. Uh, typically, your primary fermentation temperatures with lager yeast are in the uh, 40 to 50 degree F range, which is Mm-hmm. Like 10, 10 to 15 degrees C. There we go. Somewhere in there. I'll have to take your word for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, come on. I'm probably off by five degrees. But, uh, <laughs> it, it's you know it's uh, you know 40 to 50 degrees F is uh, your primary fermentation temp, and the fermentation typically takes a week, um, approximately twice as long as nail fermentation. And after you've gotten the primary uh, phase out of the way, where the the, the activity starts slowing down, um, you're going to want to lager the beer, and you're gonna, in doing so, you chill the beer uh, down towards freezing. Um, you can take it as low as uh, like 30 degrees F, right? You know, just below freezing, because the alcohol in the beer will prevent the uh, prevent the beer from freezing. And the colder you lager it, the more you can get um, protein and tannin compounds to complex together and settle out. And you could, that, that's how you end up with very brilliantly clear lager beers and very smooth-tasting beers because you get these tannin, these polyphenol compounds to complex with uh, protein in the, ma- in the wort, or in the beer, I should say, and settle out. Um, the risk that you run when lagering that cold is that the beer will suddenly freeze on you. Mm. And I've had that happen to me, and it's really, <laughs> really disappointing, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but uh, the, you, you can usually, if you don't break the carboy that you're lagering in, you can usually thaw it and, uh, and revive it. Well, what what are the what are the advantages of lagering? Why why would you want to go to all the extra effort uh, and equipment uh, to to lager a beer? Well, uh, lager beer is just a different type of beer to begin with. I mean, you you don't get the fruity esters that you do with an ale. You generally get a uh, more malt dominated flavor profile. You often get a clearer beer um, due to the lagering, like I mentioned. And uh, it has a, you know, can have a 
crisper um, character to it than an ale. Um, and you know, the, the, it's it's a properties of the yeast itself, and the 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 temperature at which you lager at is going to influence that character also. So you've got various flavors that are um, are characteristic of lagers uh, versus ales, and you have some clarity uh, and mouthfeel differences between lagers and ales too. Now, for for a home brewer. And maybe we should separate this out uh, into, you know, those who have and those who have not. The <laughs> those who have a dedicated freezer with a, a temperature control uh, and those who, you know, kind of have to improvise. What are the best practices? And, you know, kind of st- take a step-by-step uh, through the lagering process, you know, from a home brewer's perspective. The lager fermentation, the primary fermentation, is going to take place at uh, 40 to 50 degrees F versus the, you know, 60 to 70 degrees F that you typically do an ale fermentation at. Actually, it's more like 65 to 70 in there. And so lager fermentations proceed more slowly, and you need to, you need some way of maintaining um, an even 45 degrees for that fermentation. Uh, some people, you know, in, in, in the more northern parts of the country, have uh, that kind of condition in their basement in the, during the winter, um, or maybe out in the garage. Um, other people, like myself, you know, we have the dedicated refrigerator or chest freezer with the temperature controller on it, where we, where we can maintain that temperature. You would be a have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I have not. So yeah. <laughs> in Southern California here, I need a I need a refrigerator to ferment ales. I mean, it uh, uh, gets up to 100 during the day here sometimes. So. Wow. But uh, yeah, you you you're looking to maintain that lower uh, temperature. If you live in Minnesota or Michigan or or the um, what do they call it, down east, uh, then you may have that uh, that temperature just naturally. You can just you know, set, set the fermenter on the back porch. Then to lager, um, you're looking, traditionally you're looking to an ice house, you know, something where the temperature is down near freezing uh, to, to help the uh, yeast uh, settle out, to help the, the proteins and the polyphenols settle out and develop, the, and develop that very crisp lager character. Um, and one way that a lot of my friends lager out here is they get a very large chest cooler, you know, uh, well, I forget what size they are, like, you know, 70 quart or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're about they're about three or four feet long and, uh, you know, about 18 inches uh, square or, you know, in the inside. And you can set them up, you know, on, on their side vertically and, and slip your whole carboy inside there with a couple of ice packs. Ah. And that makes just a nice little uh, cold box that you can lager in. Just pack it with full of ice and set it in there, and you've got a, you've got a lagering cabinet. I figured out I was, I was playing uh, with potential, you know, equipment setups for a lager uh, for this winter, and I discovered that my 10-gallon... Rubbermaid uh, cylindrical drinking cooler oh, yeah. that I use for for mashing. A five gallon carboy will fit neatly inside there. Oh yeah. So 
you know, that's a potential solution as well. That is, yes. Now, you know, when you're when you're pitching your your yeast, do you go straight down to 45, or what's the what's the best uh, the best procedure for that? There's two schools of thought with your um, yeast uh, preparation, your fermentation preparation. Very often, you will re- you will read yeast instructions that say pitch your yeast at room temperature and gradually lower the temperature of the the fermentation over the next day and a half to your intended primary fermentation temperature. You can do that because um, your diacetyl precursors don't form for the first 12 to, you know, uh, 18, 24 hours into the fermentation. They don't start being produced by the yeast while they're going through their rapid growth phase and so on. So you can you can get lucky and miss um, generating lots of diacetyl that the which is a kind of a, a buttery uh, off flavor for lagers. You can miss generating that uh, the precursors of that compound early in the fermentation. Then the yeast can reabsorb and condition whatever diacetyl was generated later in the fermentation. So the yeast can get kind of a good head start before you start cooling them down. Yeah, you can you can take advantage of higher growth, you know, faster growth um, to build up uh, a low pitching rate um, at higher temperatures, and then just about the time that they they would start producing lots of diacetyl, or I shouldn't say they don't produce diacetyl; they produce the precursors, and diacetyl forms chemically uh, independently of the yeast. But by the time that would start happening, then the wort is cool enough that they um, they don't produce as much of those precursors. I prefer to cool my wort down to primary fermentation temperature before I pitch. Um, and the reason for that is because if, you know if you're cool to start with and you take a cold yeast starter out of the refrigerator and pitch it to um, the same temperature wort or a wort that is actually slightly warmer than what you had, you had, had it resting at, um, the yeast get in there and think, okay, it's time to, time to get to work. Hmm. Um, it, they, they acclimate pretty quickly. Um, you have to pitch more yeast when you do that because uh, they don't have that rapid growth phase at warmer temperatures. At cooler temperatures, they work more slowly. So you got to pitch a larger starter but um, I, I feel, and I've talked to heads of yeast companies that also agree that they prefer the flavor of a beer that has been uh, started cold versus one that's been started warm and cooled. And uh, I, I tried to pin them down and say, you know, what is the advantage? What is that flavor difference? And they, apparently it's an intangible. There's something mm. about it that they prefer. Now, what, how, how big of a starter and what gravity do you use for that? 1040 gravity is a, is a good uh, starter gravity. Um, it's kind of an average beer gravity. And uh, 1020 to 1040, anywhere in there is acceptable for the yeast. You're not going to shock them with uh, you know, high osmotic pressure you know, when pitching them to a starter of that gravity. And depending on how strong a beer you're going to make. Um, 
you, you're you're going to need. Let's let me let me throw out a couple numbers here. Uh, to to ferment five gallons or twenty liters, nineteen liters for five gallons, you're going to want somewhere around 110 to 170 billion yeast cells for a gravity that's 1055 or less. So for your um, Vienna lager, for your uh, Munich Dunkel, for uh, for American light lager or American standard lager or Pilsner, 1055 and less, you're going to want 110 to 170 billion yeast cells for that five gallons. How do you get there? Well, you take um, one um, yeast packet or um, like a dry yeast packet. If, you, if you're using a dry lager yeast, for instance, I'll just start with that because those contain about 60 billion cells to start with. And so if you pitch that uh, to a one-liter starter, you're going to get about 125 uh, or 128 billion cells from a one-quart starter, starting with uh, one dry yeast packet. Mm. If you start with a yeast smack pack, which are 100 billion cells, or likewise the uh, White Labs uh, ready-to-pitch tube, those are about 100 billion cells also, and you pitch the, that 100 billion to a one-quart starter, you're going to end up with about 170 billion cells. Hmm. And for a 1055 lager, that's that's just what you want. You want that quantity of yeast going into a cold fermentation to get it, you know, get that uh, start up within 12 hours, you know, short lag time, and have a nice vigorous fermentation at at lager t- at you know lager primary fermentation temperatures. Uh, higher gravity lagers, such as uh, say 1065 to 1075, you're going to want more in the neighborhood of 225 to 285 billion cells, and that would call for a three quart starter. There's yeah, three quart starter from that initial uh, White Labs tube or YE smack pack. Wow. Now these are these are the uh, the, the 125 milliliter. I think they're called Y-East activator packs now. I think you're right. And so one of those has about 100 billion. Pitch it to a three-quart starter. You'll end up with a 270 billion, which is good for your 10 for your one uh, 1065 to 1075 OG lager. So that's that's for you know for a Bach suitable for Bach beer. For an Oktoberfest style, something in the neighborhood of 1055 to 1065, you'd be looking at 170 billion to 225 billion, and that would be the equivalent of a two-quart starter uh, from from the 100 billion to start with. So we've so we've got a good healthy starter, and we've we've got our wort chilled down to in your preference chilled down to. Uh, to fermentation temperature before you pitch before we pitch and uh, we pitch and of course aerate well yep uh and then hopefully off it goes right now is 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 a lager primary fermentation as vigorous as an ale primary fermentation not quite but it can be um it's not going to be it's not going to have the the giant croissant you know 
popping the airlock off the top like you do when you're making a, you know, a strong ale um, or a barley wine. But uh, yeah, you can get you know good, good vigorous lager fermentations when you pitch the right volume of yeast. If you only take you know the uh, the White Labs tube or the you know the or the hundred billion cells to start with, and you pitch that cold without a start, you just put you know into a lager fermentation. It's going to start out slow, and mm. it's going to take 24 hours for you to start seeing some decent bubbling in the airlock, and it's going to be it's going to be a steady blub 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 blub, blub but it's not going to be the that you used to seeing from ales. <laughs> so, yeah, um, your pitching rate has a definite effect on you know the the vigor of the lager fermentation, and that will have definite effects on the character of the beer afterwards. Um, the amount of the amount of um, oh, slight esters that you would receive that you would get in the beer, the diacetyl, the um, fusel alcohols. Uh, settle to the hide, you know, other various, you know, off flavors and intermediate uh, flavors in uh, the lager. I, I would assume that it, that it would be better to have a strong, clean fermentation to, to have the nice, clean uh, characteristics of the lager. Yeah. Um, if you, if you, when you underpitch a lager, um, you tend to get more esters forming. And of course, an ester, or you know, a fruity character in a lager is, you know, is an off flavor. You're, you're, it's a drawback. You really, you're not, you don't want that in a good lager. So um, you get better results by pitching uh, more yeast. But if you um, if you pitch too much, uh, then you can also get uh, off flavors and uh, you can get uh, more more fusel alcohols. Uh, you can get uh, more diacetyl. For, for instance, the cetylhyde, that green apple flavor, mm-hmm. is caused by both over pitching and under pitching, mm-hmm. and under aeration. So, y- lagers are trickier beers to ferment than ales. You you need to do it. Uh, you can't do it too much, and can't do it too little. You know whatever whether it's aeration or if it's your pitching rate, if you want the best lager possible. So ales are more forgiving. Ales are more forgiving. So we're, we're at the end of primary fermentation, and uh, I guess we see our, our uh, airlock slow down, if not stop, and we've reached a terminal gravity. And uh, where do we go from there? Well, from there you would want to um, go to your lagering uh, step, but you've, if you've waited that long for the airlock to really slow down uh, and you've gotten to your terminal gravity, you've missed the opportunity to do, to do a diacetyl rest. Ah. And depending on the yeast strain that you're working with and depending on your aeration and pitching rate when you started that fermentation, uh, you may have a lot of diacetyl still in the beer. And if you rack to uh, another carboy, a five-gallon carboy, and prepare to lager that beer, you may you know, rack the beer off most of the yeast that would reduce that diacetyl mm. in your beer. And uh, the, 
and you can cool to if you you know cool it quickly for the, the lagering phase the yeast are not going to take up that diacetyl as fast as they would if, if they were at their primary fermentation temperature. So uh, a diacetyl rest is often recommended, and what you do there is when you're getting down to, you know, you've gotten three, course, three quarters of the way to your terminal gravity, and your, your, your bubbling rate has, you know, gone from a steady high rate to a much to a slower rate, but it hasn't. You know, it's not it's not the one per minute kind of thing, but it's you know still a slower rate, and the croissant hasn't started falling in. You can raise the temperature of the beer at that point to like ale temperatures, 65 degrees Fahrenheit, hmm. and do a diacetyl rest, and that will that will increase the activity of the yeast in, in that are still suspended, and they will take up more of the diacetyl. Uh, and and clean up the beer uh, more quickly. Then you can cool the beer and get them to downshift and you know go through the the precipitation reactions I mentioned. You know to enter the lagering phase. So how long is your uh, as your is your diacetyl rest? You you warm it up to ale temperature to to make sure you you, you clean out all the diacetyl flavors. How long do you leave it at, at uh, ale uh, temperature? One to two days, twenty four to forty eight hours. And that's while it's still in the primary ferment, fermenter. Yeah. And and then once you go through that, it's it's time to rack and and go into a secondary. Yeah. You can all. I mean, you know, the last logger that I did, I loggered it in the primary. Huh. I didn't rack it. Really. Beer turned out great. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it stay on that uh, primary <clears throat> yeast cake? Uh, about six weeks total. Really. Yeah. Now that you know, they they could. Conventional wisdom would say that uh, you'd you'd be in danger of uh, autolysis. Yeah, I I used to, to preach uh, heavily about racking and saying, oh yeah, you got to rack for best best performance, but uh, you really don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to get letters on that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, there's there's best practice and there's what usually works. Now, is it because that the that the yeast are at uh, at a refrigerated temperature that that maybe you you don't get uh, the danger of anatolysis, I guess for those who have tuned in, you know, without listening to the whole uh, series of uh, podcasts, autolysis is is the uh, the degrading of those yeast bodies, uh, giving an off flavor to the beer. But is it because maybe the the yeast is refrigerated that you don't get that? Well, you can still get autolysis in lager fermentations. Um, and but the it's kind of a if you have healthy yeast going into the fermentation with good wort nutrition, um, you know, an all malt or a a you know adjunct um, you know American lager uh, kind of mash you know wort going into the fermentation, but one where you've you've taken care to make sure that you've got the right level of yeast nutrients going into that batch. Good aeration to start with, you know, healthy yeast starting. Chances of autolysis are really low. Um, I've I've been brewing, you know, what, 10, 12 years now, and I haven't had uh, an autolysis batch yet. Hmm. Um, but I did, I did, in fact, taste one while I was judging beer uh, earlier this year. And what kind of taste do you get from autolysis? It's uh, 
it varies. You know, a very lightly autolyzed beer has a, a yeast taste or a, uh, you know, if you open if you open a packet of dried soup like, you know, uh, or you know, chicken noodle or you know beef noodle, Lipton beef noodle dry soup uh, or uh, dry bouillon, mm-hmm. it has kind of a bouillon smell to it. Huh. If it's a little more alitized, it's more like the smell of a, a jar of B vitamins. You know, you open up the, the, the lid and take a take a whiff. That B vitamin smell is what the beer taste smelled and tasted like hmm. that I was that I was judging earlier this year. And uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't revolting, and I didn't you know you know jump up from my chair. It's just like oh, so here's a. <laughs> Here's actually an autolyzed beer. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> now, was it a beer that uh, that was bad enough to, you know, to throw away, or was it one of those where you just kind of drink it anyway? It was it was bad enough that, uh, you know, I I took the, my required two sips to judge it, and then didn't have any more. Ah. Um, and if I and if I had had a, a keg of that or several bottles of that, I would have I would have thrown it out because ah. it really. It didn't taste like beer anymore. Oh. It tasted like uh, bouillon or, or um, B vitamins. It had a meaty, brothy kind of smell and, and flavor to it. So it didn't taste like beer anymore. Well, that's a shame. I guess one question uh, uh, that I want to ask is: when you're going from the for, when you're when you're doing a diacetyl rest at ale temperatures, and you want to get down to lager temperatures. Do you go just straight down into uh, thirty degrees? Uh, no, you kind of you, you um, need to do it fairly slowly. Otherwise, you'll you'll shock the yeast and they'll just flocculate out, and um, you don't get some of the benefits of the yeast conditioning the beer. I think I remember reading like five degrees yeah, a day. It yeah, if you, you just you know take it down you know bit by bit and. Uh, you're you're trying to condition the yeast to this colder temperature, and yeah, five degrees a day. You know, turn the fridge controller down a little bit every day, and uh, you'll get you can get down to um, 35 degrees, uh, and do your lagering for a couple of weeks. You can lager faster. You can that is you can condition the beer faster at a higher temperature, like 40 degrees. Let's let's say you did your primary fermentation at 50 degrees F. You can lager at 40 degrees F in a matter of two or three weeks, and the warmer temperature is going to allow the yeast to work just a little bit faster hmm. and condition the beer a little bit faster, clean up some of those green flavors. The 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 downside of that is you don't get the the clearing of the beer, the you know the the, the precipitation of the proteins and polyphenols. You know they can all they, so you'll still have you won't have as clean a lager character as you would if you uh, managed to take it all the way down to you know 30 to 35 degrees to lager it. You get better better precipitation and better clarification of the lager beer at those colder temperatures, and you get a smoother lager beer comparatively. Is there a difference in after say after you bottle your your lager beer? Should you then keep it in the refrigerator, or does it matter? Can you keep it at your regular storage temperature oh, for once your you, beers? Once you've lagered it and bottled it, um, you can just store it at room temperature. 
you don't have to you don't have to keep them cold. So all the work is done, and yeah, there's nothing no, no harm in them coming back up to room temperature at that point. That's right. In fact, you know, for the priming for priming and bottling carbonation, uh, you're going to want to do that carbonation step at room temperature. Ah, it would take you know because that way you can get the bottle to carbonate within you know one to one to three weeks. If you tried to do it at lagering temperature still, it would take a month or two mm. <laughs> to uh, to get them to generate that same level of uh, uh, you know of gas in the beer. And you've already you've al- you've already waited longer than the normal yeah <laughs> for this beer. <laughs> well, now, you know, did you did you do any you know like I, like I said before, you are a have now that you you know you've got a a temperature controlled freezer. Yeah. Did you do any lagering before you you got your your freezer and and do you have any advice for for people who don't have the facility either the room or the you know the uh, uh, the the want to to invest in in a big piece of equipment like that for lagering. Don't buy more than you need. Uh, when I when I first started lagering, I uh, I had I had the fridge that I used for primary fermentation, but um, I didn't have a temperature controller for it. And just trying to go down to you know I you know I'm reading. Uh, books on on beer you know uh, such as brewing lager beer i'm thinking okay i want to get right down to 33 degrees you know <laughs> and so i'm tweaking the little controller inside my therm- my refrigerator trying to get down to that and of course my my lager ended up freezing <laughs> um <laughs> so after i got the thaw i uh, i built three cold boxes that don't tell my wife. It probably cost me about one hundred and fifty dollars in materials, <laughs> um, and uh, to, so I could just put ice packs around them and lager them that way, and it worked very well. But uh, you know, now subsequently, I bought a, a temperature controller for that fridge, and now I just lager uh, in that fridge using the temperature controller. And I have these three cold boxes that sit in the garage <laughs> that I use for stacking things on. Well, you know, there's eBay. You can yeah. always go. <laughs> John Palmer autographed ice box air for <laughs> cool boxes. <laughs> yeah. I suppose that's an option. I, yeah. you, I you, forget that there are other 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 are other people who would who would uh, potentially covet these custom built boxes. <laughs> oh sure, but I we I've read emails uh, on the show from people who uh, you know either in in. Um, Warm climates like like yours and in Hawaii, um, you know, fashioning, uh, uh, you know, use or using coolers with um, uh, ice water baths to to even get down to ale temperature fermentations. Uh, I would guess that that would take a little practice and would be a bit tricky uh, to do. But if but if you had the energy and the time and the and the want to. Uh, you know, to figure out how to do that, then that is a way that you can logger, you know, without yeah, investing cold boxes in all that stuff. Or the, like you mentioned, you know, you put it, setting the carboy in a in a cooler uh, to help insulate it from the environment works quite well. Your blue ice packs work quite well. I I went to the to the store and bought you know ten ten pound blocks of ice, and also like the twenty pound twenty pound bags of crushed ice. Those would last three or four days inside hmm. the cooler um, wow. 
they re- you know it really did keep and uh, it made me realize that uh, you know icebox technology that our grandparents used you know wasn't that primitive it mm-hmm. it actually worked quite well so yeah that's that's definitely a viable option also you can to and to emphasize that you can brew lager beers at relatively warm temperatures you know 50 55 degrees for primary you know lager at you know 40 to 45 to 50 degrees if you have to um you can you can brew good tasting lager character beers at those temperatures they won't be quite the same as pilsner or quell won't be quite the same as some of the you know some of the lagers that you're you know dreaming of but it will be very close and it's in its homebrew so yeah you know unless you're trying to enter a competition and you know you're competing against people who have the freezers yeah. uh then you know you're probably still going to enjoy it and your your friends will or at least your friends with good taste are probably still going to be impressed uh and it's probably still going to be fun you know yeah i i like lager beers i i try to brew a vienna um every spring um my my annual March beer. That's uh, because our club gets together and does a big club brew in March, and uh, it's uh, easier to pull all the equipment together and you know and spend a, a day brewing with my friends yeah. <laughs> than it is to find the time of my own. <laughs> you have a, a manufactured excuse there. Yeah. Well, it is. Uh, can you think of anything else that uh, that that we need to talk about on the subject of loggers? Let's see. One other thing that's uh, just a handy tip: um, if you're going to prime and bottle your lager, uh, you know you've gone through this lagering phase, and a lot of your yeast have settled out, and you're worrying, you know, is my beer going to carbonate? Well, what you can do is take another pouch or another tube of your lager yeast and mix it in at priming time. Hmm. You don't need to build up a starter. Just that one tube or that one pouch will be more than sufficient. And you can mix that in with your priming. You know, Once you've made your priming solution and cooled it, you can mix that in, and uh, that will ensure that you have enough yeast to carbonate quickly. And same strain that you used for same, primary same fermentation. Same strain originally used, yeah. That's good advice. You might not get, uh, because the lagers, you are expecting good carbonation. Yeah, and, and if your lager happens to freeze, you know, when you're lagering and you thaw it out, uh, chances are, you know, your yeast are pretty well shot at that point, or at mm. least they're not interested in getting back to work. So <laughs> They've retired. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you can, you can do the same thing. You can... You know, pitch that extra tube or pouch of yeast to the batch. Uh, you want to avoid aeration, though. Mm. And uh, but you know, add that yeast back in, swirl it up, and that should that should be sufficient to get the fermentation uh, to finish up. Well, again, I I appreciate your time. And uh, how's how's the book coming? Uh, <laughs> not as fast as it needs to. <laughs> I'm, I've been told I have ten days left. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> so. It's uh, there's always there's always uh, you know one more paragraph that I want to tweak, and uh, I just got a paper sent to me the other day from a friend of mine saying, hey, did you see this paper on uh, enzyme activity? 
And uh, it's like, wow, what a fascinating paper. That's really interesting. I'd like to incorporate that. (laughs) (laughs) You need a deadline, John. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, best of luck on the book, and we look uh, look forward to seeing it. Thank you. And I appreciate your being on the show. Anytime. Happy to. Well, thanks again to John Palmer for joining us. It's always fun to talk to John. Uh, you can read the entire first edition of his book at howtobrew.com. That's howtobrew.com. Well, next week I hope to have the first part of an interesting concept for a show. The American Homebrewers Association has provided us with a Flavor Active Beer Taste Troubleshooting Kit. Well, this, this kit is called The Enthusiast, and it has samples of eight off flavors that you can mix into beer to uh, simulate some of the problems you may experience in homebrewing. So a group of us is planning to get together and to sample some bad-tasting beers in the interest of brewer education. And I hope to have at least the first part of that uh, tasting session for uh, next week. So that should be fun. If you have uh, brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. And please don't forget to tell us where you're from. And if you're wanting to get into home brewing while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. We'll walk you through the process step by step. And uh, you can see a listing of the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD. And if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it online. And don't forget about our all-grain pre-release uh, offer on our all-grain DVD at basicbrewing.com grain. And our Frapper Map. Boy, lots of people on the Frapper Map. It's great to see. Okay, well, that's all until next week. Until then... Thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer. Production help for Basic Brewing Radio and our website is provided by Kelly Dodson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.